This is Subversive, a podcast hosted by me, Alex Kashuta, to highlight hidden voices, uncommon perspectives, and our era's true intellectual elite, the anonymous poster. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. Thank you and enjoy. Today, I am joined by Paul Gottfried. Uh, Paul Gottfried is an American political philosopher. He's a historian, he's a writer, um, and the editor in chief of Chronicles. He is the author of many fine books, among them After Liberalism, Mass Democracy in the Managerial State, uh, Fascism, the Career of a Concept, and his latest book, Anti Fascism, The Course of a Crusade. Thank you so much for coming on, Paul. My pleasure. Um, I've had the the pleasure of actually meeting you in person at NatCon, uh, which was great, uh, and hearing you speak live there was was a privilege. Um, and uh, I think it's a it's a very good time to be speaking with you because we have entered apparently a new era on the right, or at least we like to tell ourselves on the mm-hmm. so called dissident right or whatever it's called today um, that this is something new. This is something that's departed from from known patterns. Um, but you, you've been you've been through the patterns in the last few decades, and you you've seen uh, different movements. You've seen purges. You've been victim of purges uh, on the right, uh, and um, and now your work and the work of many others uh, who have been purged in, in previous iterations of the right has been rediscovered, and it's fueling uh, kind of a, a different type of, of right wing politics. So mm-hmm. I wonder how you perceive this and maybe you could tell us a little bit about your history within the right and with within the movements uh how how have you seen the last maybe 40 years on the right and and you know where where did it start where what did we go through especially with neoconservatism and what what do you see emerging now yeah um i i have to say i i approached the conservative movement initially as a scholar um, who shared some of the values and concerns of American conservatives, but as somebody who was basically interested in scholarship, and I've written on the histories of political movements. Um, uh, I started out uh, as a medievalist with some interest in antiquity and the classical languages, and then landed up writing on the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and uh, uh, throughout this period, I, I, I focused on political change, um, and uh, what has certainly been interested has interested me over the last thirty years, and may reflect my experiences with the conservative movement, is what I call the misuse of political labels, which create confusion that generally benefit the left. So that uh, you know, somebody who appears on Fox News who's a transgendered but objects to um, sexualizing preschool children is considered a conservative. Um, whereas somebody who said, you know, uh, I find Martin Luther King a problematic figure and the civil rights movement did not turn out in, in a way that we might have hoped or something like that. This person is considered an extreme rightist, po- possibly verging on white nationalism. So that uh, terms like, and of course, the word liberal, on which I wrote a book after liberalism, uh, is basically the idea of the bourgeoisie. And Marx was not wrong in saying that. 
but liberalism now is LGBT or Black Lives Matter. Now, the question is, why, why do these labels uh, sort of move always to the left, to the cultural social left, never, of course, to the right? Um, and why do we keep using labels that really belong to the era of the French Revolution and the, and the, uh, the restoration after the revolution, which have absolutely no relevance to anything going on? Uh, and that became actually the central focus of my scholarship for about 40 years. And they, the answer is that what you have is a piecemeal surrender to the left. Um, and to the administrative state, which embraces leftist ideology. <laughs> and the left has become more and more radicalized and moved from socioeconomic questions to cultural revolution. Uh, the right has become more and more vestigial. Uh, um, and I, th I think this remained the case, certainly from the 1980s with the triumph of the neoconservatives, um, down to, I think, the last few years in which I'm beginning to see in my old age uh, some kind of real movement toward the right. Um, the post-war conservative movement in which I've written in both English and German, uh, the post-war conservative movement um, had a single focus, uh, which was anti-communism and fighting the Cold War. <laughs> um, and you know, uh, eagerly threw people off the bus, as I've argued, if they did not buy into that agenda. Uh, therefore, um, you know, those who were afraid of what they call the military or the uh, the welfare warfare state, uh, were be, they became persona non grata uh, in this movement as it um, uh, made anti-communism the big issue. And, if, and eventually, this, these conservatives form an alliance with the neoconservatives who take over their movement. And who share their anti-communist uh, share anti-communism, although not necessarily the rightist ideology of the older American conservative movement. But I, I think I think what has happened among those people who call themselves paleoconservatives or dissident, dissident right, uh, and these terms sort of get you know some people say these are really right and extremist in terms of the media. The, the, the Murdoch media, which hardly ever, with the exception maybe of Tucker Carlson, who doesn't really have too many people who sound like this, um, you know, um, writing for their publications or, or on TV. Um, they use these terms interchangeably, but I, I think there is an important distinction that I would insist on that um, what looks to me like the populist right, uh, what in my generation was called paleoconservative, and I coined that term paleoconservative, um, now in many ways formed the center of the conservative movement. You saw that at the National Conservative Conference. I mean, these people are now the center of the movement, although they do not have the media resources that what I call conservatism incorporated does, which is, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the regular people on Fox News. Um, uh, ben Shapiro. And of course, these people keep what I consider by now the vital center of the movement from really going anywhere. But I think this is going to change. I, I think there is a right, you know, a far right, and it tends to be white nationalist or, in, you know, in a more extreme cases, neo-Nazi. But I think they're really um, peripheral. They're, they're, what, what is happening, what we're seeing is the expansion of what, uh, you know, what my uh, my staff and I call the uh, 
the, the, the new center. There's a new vital center of the conservative movement. And it really is the populist right. Um, and uh, it is not really allied to corporate capitalism. Um, it is socially conservative. Um, and, uh, you know, it finds natural allies in the working class right now. I mean, th- this is exactly the opposite of what the left used to be, right? Yes. I mean, you you describe it fairly well. Uh, I think in, in a way, the, the new right or dissident right is an, in a way kind of anti-neoconservative. It's very well positioned against, against mm-hmm. what they see as um, a failing movement or a movement that is controlled opposition by its very nature and mm-hmm. has been the handmaiden of the left by essentially just, just you know, Im- imposing libertarian measures in, in, in the field where traditional uh, norms were present, where maybe mm-hmm. people were more socially conservative and with, with ham-fisted legislation, with Supreme Court decisions and, and seeing that all as uh, expansions of freedom. While on the other hand, you know, not no one really protected any of the the so-called conservative spaces. It was all left to, um, you know, free market ideology. The idea that uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, and not all boats have been lifted. And so I think that's kind of what people on our side are starting to realize. Um, and I think the um, the Trump election was a, was a a bit of a shock because the the machinations of power were on display in a in a way so naked that people were were shocked into into moving you know into studying writers mm-hmm. from you know like uh, like James Burnham obviously mm-hmm. very interesting mm-hmm. for people who were shocked by the fact that power doesn't change hands if you actually want to change things or if you want to move in a rightward direction so um, yeah, a lot of um, a lot of people rediscovered. You know, you, your work as well has been very blooming on on the dissident right. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it it is a lot of um, um, I don't know a rediscovery of truths mm-hmm. known known by people from for previous generations, but forgotten maybe for for the little space of, of neoconservatism. No, I I, th- I think I think you're absolutely right. There's sort of a rediscovery of people like me who've been ignored for 50 years. <laughs> I'm sorry, um, <laughs> you know, and never were reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, and ceased to be reviewed in National Review after the 1980s. Um, and suddenly, these people are you hear names like Carl Schmitt, Machiavelli, Burnham, uh, Pareto, <laughs> suddenly becoming uh, Sam Francis, of course, who's you know was taken out of one might say the uh, the dustbin of history. Or what were the uh, the rogues gallery, you know, and it's become a hero to the uh, to the populist right. Of course, they think he's a racist. Well, nobody seems to care very much. They care about his examination of the managerial state, you know, an examination of uh, of hegemonic ideologies and uh, his neo Gramscianism. These have become very popular um, on the right, but they're still given no place in National Review, um, Fox News, uh, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they're still excluded, but but I think I think what has happened is that all these people who are excluded, you know, they they are uh, they are multitudes, <laughs> whereas the people who are running the show, you know, and making very large salaries don't count. There there is a, sort of the same break that I break up I see among libertarians that the libertarian left, which is centered in Cato, um, does very well. You know, they get invited to write for things, and there are a few others, uh, groups like that, like the, um, uh, what is the other one, uh, Fee or something, uh, which is uh, sort of a uh, sort of a left libertarian institution. They all do well. 
The Mises Institute, although it has a lot of money and very much of a presence, is ignored. But they've really moved toward the um, uh, toward, toward the national conservative right. And uh, they're they're not allowed into the uh, into the conservative what I call conservatism incorporated. They're kept out. Um, but the problem is you have so many people you know banging on the door who are not being let into the club that at a certain point this becomes problematic. I mean, how much longer can you ignore them? Uh, I noticed that my young colleague uh, Pedro Gonzalez is, is is now on Fox. I see him. I turn it on. Pedro doesn't tell me he's there. He's there. And he sounds like a paleo conservative, um, but uh, and uh, he's only he's only on uh, on uh, Tucker Carlson. He is not on uh, obviously on these other programs. He hasn't been invited by Laura Ingram or some of the more conventional people. But I but I, th- I think some of these walls are breaking down, and I think it is very hard to go on excluding what what as I said has become the vital center, you know, of the American right by now. Yes, I think one of the strengths of the space is like like you noticed um, is people are a little bit indifferent to the framing of the left. Not completely. There's still been mm-hmm. purges for racism and things like that on, on kind of the fringe, especially on the more religious uh, end of the mm-hmm. yes of the right. Uh, but uh, the idea that you know you could defenestrate someone instantly for anti-Semitism, which was tried on Pedro not not long ago, uh, and right. he. It, it rolled like water off a duck's back. It just, you know, strengthened this profile. So um, you know, there, there's all sorts of little things like that, uh, that people are trying, but it, it seems a little, a bit bulletproof for that, at least, you know, in, in its more benign versions. I mean, I'm, we don't have, you know, lynchings or anything that's uh, of that caliber, but uh, just the idea that someone espouses some form of wrong thing and they should be thrown out of the, out of the clubhouse doesn't really happen here. And I think that's, um, that's refreshing. And it also attracts people because people really, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of smart people are fed up with this type of thinking. And I think that's, a big chunk of the energy that that draws people to this space, uh, because it, it it really is just refreshing to just be somewhere where you don't have to look over your shoulder all the time and and hedge your language infinitely. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I I think it is interesting what happened with Pedro when he was attacked by Barry Weiss and uh, Douglas Murray. Um, it was utter nonsense. <laughs> they were attacking him with some Jewish friend he made fun of or something. Um, and uh, Douglas Murray has done very well. I mean, his, his his stuff is published regularly in the in the New York Post, and I see him every five minutes on Fox News, uh, um, expounding uh, expounding platitudes. But uh, you know, he's done very well. But the important thing is that Pedro Gonzalez was not ruined after he made the charge. Now, in the 1980s, the neocons would you know would use what Murray Rothbard called the anti-Semitic branding iron. They were gone. You know, they, uh, what they were doing was, you know, read, reading the sentence of professional death over you. It doesn't work that way anymore. Um, uh, the, the other thing that's very apparent, the people who are making charges, you know, you're a racist, you're an anti-Semite and so forth. Uh, this is what I've long argued. They're basically playing to the left. They're friends on the left. They're virtue signaling. You see, I've, you know, I'm going after the anti. I'm going after all these 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 other people. Uh, well, of course, it's a joke because the left doesn't care about anti-Semitism. They've all these anti-Semites right. Kanye West was saying the same thing about Jews and Hitler when he was on the left. Um, 
But what they're doing is they're virtue signaling to each other, you know, and hoping that people at the Atlantic or somewhere might might notice how good, you know, what good people they are. Uh, it just does not have the same effect. You know, it's like um, uh, there's some old joke that this Jewish person puts up a, 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 um, a cross or actually a Romanian peasant. And then you have the uh, uh, Dracula, the vampire coming and the, and the vampire says, speaks in Yiddish and says, you know, this has no effect on me. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what these anti, you know, the anti-Semitic branding. Nobody cares anymore. You know, and, and the left uses it hypocritically and so forth. Um, I think, however, it still does carry weight with uh, the Murdoch family, with the people who run the New York Post and uh, who do the good stuff occasionally. You know, uh, 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 Miranda Devine and, and Michael Goodwin and others write very interesting articles about the Biden family. But their editorial policy is the same as the Wall Street Journal. It's strictly neoconservative. And you, you know that. Um, but gen- generally, these attacks aren't, you know, they're, they're just not working the same old magic. Um, the, the, the other thing that I write about, uh, which seems entirely uh, archaic, is attacking people as Marxist. Now, I'm not a Marxist, but these, uh, you know, somebody tells me that I am, uh, you know, that I'm a black transgendered this or that, and this makes me a Marxist. How does this make you a Marxist? Where's the Marxism? And, you know, I've, I've written on this extensively that, you know, Marxism is over. The left has gone from Marxism to wokeism. Uh, and the, the working class is not Marxist. The working class, if you look at the European uh, right, they are the right. <laughs> you know, the left are the academics, the homosexuals, the lesbians, the people who come in from the third world. So to do what, let's say, someone like Michael Levin did, which is to write this book about American Marxism, Attacking the woke is ridiculous. This has nothing to do with. I mean, you know, one doesn't have to be a Marxist to recognize that this is not Marxism. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, uh, some something happening. Uh, you know, the, the, today the uh, if a cyber attack, you say, well, this is the fault of uh, uh, the Albigensians or so. If, if <laughs> pick out somebody from the past to blame this on. Uh, but, but the reason that they still use this Marxist um, uh, language or attack the Marxist, they, 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 they uh, unleash diatribes against him, is that the conservative movement was held together so long by anti-Marxism, right? They're, they're still fighting the communists. So the Chinese are not in nationalist danger. They're communists. Um, I never really think of that. I think they're authoritarian nationalist government. Uh, the same thing with Putin. Um, I don't think these people, I don't, I don't take the communist label very seriously at all. Yes. I think the, um, there is a, it's, it's much easier to build a following and build interest by doing these extensive genealogies of wokeness and their, mm-hmm. you know, seven part series on the Frankfurt school and, you know, how Hegelianism birthed, uh, you know, the relativistic frame in which the left could do this and that is in an infinity of content and uh, interest that you can spark with this. Um, but you know, it is interesting actually, cause you, uh, you've had contact with one of the founders of the Frankfurt school. What, what do you think? Yes. I think, yes, with, with Herbert Marcuse. Um, what do you think would, would we be in the same type of situation if somehow by some miracle, the Frankfurt school was, uh, was erased from history, would we be in a, in a similar spot or was it as influential as some people might think? 
Well, I, I distinguish between the first and second generation of the Frankfurt School. The first generation, uh, which Marcuse may be, you know, at the very end, um, goes back to the early 1920s to Frankfurt. And uh, you have Marx Horkheimer and his father is the, uh, you know, the, the German word to be the Gründerväter. They're like the founding fathers of this uh, institution. And then you get Adorno coming along later and all kinds of other people who latch on to this, this movement. Uh, there is a very good book in German by Wiggenshaus called Die Frankfurter Schule, which deals with, you know, the origins. It's about 800 pages. Uh, but there is a second, and many of these people, of course, come to America in the 1930s because they're Jewish or half Jewish or, in any case, anti-Nazi. And some stay here. Others go back to uh, uh, to Frankfurt in the early 1950s when they had the University of Frankfurt. They create the the Institute for Sozialforschung as part of the university. And it is uh, nurtured, paid for by the American government to re-educate the Germans, you know. And of course, they do re-educate them successfully. That's why they're they're like woke Nazis today. They do such a good job on that. <laughs> um, but the uh, the first generation is not is 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 radical for its time, uh, you know. They. Uh, they're, 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 they're critical of the capitalist class. They're critical of Christianity. Um, but uh, they go on viewing homosexuality as an aberration, as, as, as pathological behavior. They would never have been for gay marriage. Um, uh, they were not really feminist by, by our own standards. Um, they, they, they do provide a seedbed of ideas which will result in more radical movements. The second generation of the Frankfurt School, typified by somebody like Jürgen Habermas, I think is much more radical. And uh, they, pretty, they, they are violently anti-German. They hate the German nation. They want total re-education. And um, they are pro-communist for a while because they hate the United States because they see it as a reactionary anti-communist country, a fascist country. They're always throwing the word fascist around. And uh, some of the people left from that movement uh, then become strong supporters of LGBT. So um, the movement, the, the Frankfurt School does become radicalized over time. But I think um, the first generation is a bit more conservative. They are very soft on the communists, you know, and I think during the Cold War, they lean strongly toward the Soviet side. Um, I, I'm not saying I'm not saying this, uh, you know, as as a violent attack on them. I think, you know, having read their work, I think they they, they dislike the United States more than the Soviet Union. Um, in the case of Marcuse, I think there's um, he does become radicalized um, after he ceases to teach at the universities. Once he's retired, he really goes off the deep end. and. Um, I was reading his Berlin Vorträge, his Berlin lectures that he gave during these, you know, this the, the anti-war protests there, and they do sound very, very woke. Like he says, you know, I've given up the working class. We really can count on them. We we have to make an alliance of the intellectuals who are radical with third world, third world revolution. You know, he's pretty much pretty much writes off the Arbeiterschaft, the working class uh, in Western countries by then. And I think this does create a bridge to what becomes the woke left, which is anti-working class. I mean, you know, it's uh, to say, you know, they're, 
uh, they're allied to corporate capitalists right now. So I mean, you, you cannot um, uh, you, you cannot really describe them as as, as Marxist in any uh, historically accurate sense. Yes, I think there's a, an, an interesting question in here about ideology because uh, there's kind of two perspectives on on uh, on this in the sense that um, sometimes ideology is emergent from the historical moment and and describes mm-hmm. it and adds fuel to the fire and maybe adds new directions that the already existing ferment can go into um, or it is decisive. I, I wonder what your position, I mean, you're someone who studied ideologies on the left and right for, for a very long time. And, and how do you see this um, causality of ideology and how important is ideology in the end? Is it just I, I, a- I think that's a very good distinction you're making. Um, <clears throat> I think if we, uh, if we look at the, um, the woke left and then we look at the populist right reaction against it, both create uh, ideologies that are generated by the historical moment in which these people are living. It's different from from Marxism. Uh, I, I'm not saying this in a derogatory way. It looks more like fa- early fascism, uh, in, in which you know th- th- you see yourself in an historical crisis, and there's a certain um, medley of ideas that you create with which to fight this. And the per- the purpose is. Uh, to create a plausible ideological reaction to what's to, and and that's exactly the way I, I look at the conservative movement in America from the 1950s on. Um, I mean, what Buckley does in the 19, mid 1950s is create his own conservative movement. It certainly does not look like the like the interwar um, <clears throat> anti big government right. You know, people like H. L. Mencken. They sound very different. Um, Mencken, Isabel Patterson, uh, Flynn, the other people who are attached to this anti to this uh, interwar right, it sounds very different from Robert Taft. <clears throat> um, what he does is he fuses an anti anti communist foreign policy with his own Catholic convictions um, and a pro free enterprise economic position. These things are just all sort of, and then he finds intellectuals who represent this this mixture of ideas, but all of whom are going to have to be anti-communist, you know, in favor of strong um, anti-communist foreign policy. Um, The neoconservatives, I think, have more sentiments or prejudices than a body of ideas. They too have to sort of create their own idea. This is very different from Marxism, where you begin with a set of ideas, right? Or Christianity, which you begin with a set of ideas. Um, here, Here what you're doing um, is reacting to the historical moment. And the, the woke left is a reaction to the historical moment, and the, so is the populist right. And, you know, we always say the body of ideas, our heritage of ideas, and we, I use this language all the time, but the reality is we're picking and choosing, you know, those thinkers who are most relevant for the historical situation in which we find ourselves. I'm here getting my, my notorious historicism that, you know, how the historical moment, you know, creates the ideas and the policies and so forth. <clears throat> but I think I think this is definitely true. I mean, there are obviously some historical conservatives who are more relevant than others. James Burnham is very relevant to the populist right. Russell Kirk, much, much less so. Right. Um, I would say Robert Nisbet is, is more relevant, not so much as a 
writer on the history of sociology, but as somebody who criticized the American nation state in its present form. Um, and, uh, you know, who was basically sort of a counter-revolutionary. So he, he is important in that respect. William F. Buckley, I don't think, even counts very much. You know, he's like totally gone. Murray Rothbard is important, not because he was an anarcho-libertarian, but because of his critique um, of the modern state, administrative state, and his populism. So, I mean, there, there's certain, uh, Sam Francis is much more important, you know, for his uh, attacks on the managerial state, for his, you know, call for a populist leader, than because, you know, he gave two or three speeches as a white nationalist. That, I don't think those even count very much. So, um, you know, there, there, there are certain bodies of ideas that the populist right will take over because they, they, they fit their current, their, their historical situation. There are other things they just don't much care about, right? I mean, so, uh, and I think the same thing is true about the left. Um, the, the German left is now trying to reintegrate Marx, you know, into the, and good luck to them. I don't see any connection, you know? <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, it's he, he doesn't he does has no connection to the present leftist ideology that I can see, but uh, you know I think there's always a, a, now the the uh, the woke left um, has a much more difficult job to do at least intellectually than the populist right because the woke left is rejecting everything they hate Western civilization you know we we on the populist right have a lot of stuff we can choose from right uh, what they have to do is you know. Uh, consult uh, uh, lesbian uh, uh, lesbian blacks or something like that. They have to create uh, they have to create their own thinkers because they basically reject Western civilization. Although they will occasionally try to link up to Marxism or see themselves as a continuation of some older left, which they're not. So, uh, but I think the populist right is in an easier situation in terms of picking ideas out of the past. You know. Exactly. We have a much uh, longer timeline to choose from. Right. <laughs> a lot of ideas in classical antiquity appeal to the mm-hmm. to the right. Uh, yeah, just all of history. Uh, things that were common sense, you know, to my grandparents' generation are all uh, there for the picking. Obviously, mm-hmm. they've they've been discarded, left in the dustbin of history by by the left. But we're very glad to to rediscover them. And it it is it is a rediscovery. I mean, I, I speak to a lot of younger people, you know, 20-year-olds, so-called Zoomers and, and people on this podcast as well. And um, a lot of them describe something like a, a deep programming to, to even allow themselves to contemplate ideas mm-hmm. like these. Mm-hmm. You know, they all stumble upon some, some strange arcane blog posts uh, or something that someone just dropped in a forum. Most people kind of, that's their way into these unsavory ideas. And they read, I don't know, a Curtis Yarvin blog post or something like that. And they get all shocked by the, the the difference between every expectation, every idea, every subliminal message they got in their entire life, mm. and um, these facts laid out quite starkly in whatever blog post they, they might find. Um, and and it, it is interesting how fast, um, Just I think it's just mass media. I mean, the internet really accelerated things, but just Watching sure. movies, you know, even for me, I, I, I'm in Romania, I grew up in Romania. I watched a lot of American movies. Uh, you know, I've, I've downloaded the software that was sent to me quite easily. And uh, I knew what the principles of a just world were. 
you know, you had equality at the, at the center, you know, you had the underdog always having to be lifted out of whatever condition he was in. <laughs> the the rich, white, normal person was actually an evil character that mm-hmm. needed to be overthrown. So all of these, every movie, you know, especially now watching, every movie has this at its core. So it's kind of this inversion. And if you watch enough of these, that's kind of the, the worldview. You just... Mm. Yeah. And it's a very high status because obviously everyone outside of America looks up to America. Even if they say they hate America, they still mimic (laughs) everything from America. So um, how do you see, I mean, America has a few problems, especially on the, on the geopolitical stage. There's been a few issues lately, Um, Mm -hmm. but how do you see America's kind of hegemonic imperial power play out in, in, in the future? Because on the one, on the one hand, things, some things are going sideways, but at the same time, the iron grip of, of American culture mm. has never been stronger and never been more invisible. People don't realize mm. that they, they're mm. running the American software. No, I, 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 I always joke with my German friends that the Deutschen des in einen Trabantenstaat is today. They live in a, uh, a satellite state. You know, uh, it's, it's not a real place. And Canada's a satellite. It's another Trabantenstaat. Uh, these 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 people don't really. They say speak exactly like they're, they're more extreme versions of Americans. Like the Turks became Muslims, they became more extreme Muslims than the Arabs. So these people are converted to the American leftist ideology, but in a much more extreme form. They just imitate us. Um, and uh, Canadians always amuse me because they they think they're we're, we're original because we have. More LGBT, right? We have we have more social, yeah, socialized medicine, and um, uh, but we reject America because it's still a sexist country. Or that, well, basically, all they're doing is saying that you know they're more fanatical about the our ideology than we are. Um, yes, I, uh, I've, I've noticed that there is uh, essentially the people that Canadians and every all the other satellite states. Mm-hmm hate about America are the people the the movies essentially tell you to hate, you know, the flyover, Bible belt, uh, you know, overweight, Walmart, (laughs) all of these people, you know, obviously they're, they're contemptible. So you hate America because that's America. That's what the American left tells you. That's exactly the case. They watch our movies and they have all of our Hollywood leftist prejudices. Um, yeah, they, they they simply react to this. One of the things, by the way, that I am really amused to look, you, you turn on TV, I always say it's like moving into French equatorial Africa. You don't see a single white person in an advertisement, this. And I, that would be okay, except all the whites are depicted negatively, right? I mean, you know, if you have black moves, fine, but, you know, white, they should be getting along with what. But the whites are always shown as evil, racist, from the Bible belt and so forth. Um, uh after a while, you think people would get sick of this. Like, you know, I want to see some white people if I buy insurance. I, you know, uh, why aren't there white people here as well? And this, they're not. I, I don't hear a great outcry in this country. Um, and the the question is, can can white Americans continue to demean themselves this way and still survive? Um, I mean, you go to school and you take critical race theory. Um, uh, th- this is different from communism in the sense that communism taught you that you were a wonderful nation of workers and peasants. Now we're being told we're worthless and people seem to like this. You know, it's not. And, uh, you know, th- the sooner you get rid of yourself as a race or a group, you know, the better off we'll all be. Um, and I, I don't think people necessarily 
um, uh, interpret this um, or process it the way we think. I think what they probably think is, you know, there are these awful white people out there and I'm not one of them. And these awful white people, you know, live in Mississippi uh, or in, I live in Pennsylvania, in the rural parts of the state. I live in rural Pennsylvania. Uh, and they're all terrible, you know, and uh, we have to uh, get rid of them and educate them. Uh, what did children, what, what's his name? Uh, Kevin Williamson, not Chilton Williamson's from National Review, from, uh, from our magazine. Uh, Kevin Williamson was talking about how he wants to see all these white people, white working class die off. Now, he's a National Review conservative saying this. So you can see how uh, you can see how widespread this, this belief is. Um, but why would you be happy to look at TV all day and see nobody who looks like you? And the only people who are members of your race are be depicted negatively. You know, I saw this. You know, the, uh, uh, and this is even true on Turner Movie Classics now. Um and uh, this is different from from communism or fascism. This because it is entirely self-destructive, uh, not because you're going to start a war necessarily, but because you hate your own group uh, so much and you're so busy demeaning it. Um, and I don't. I, I think the Europeans have uh, taken this over. As I argue in my books, the re-education of Germans after the Second World War is a prototype for all wokeism. Because what you're doing is you're saying that these people have a thoroughly disgusting, evil past that they have to reject. Uh, all their ancestors were Nazis or proto-Nazis. And what we have to do is turn them into progressive Americans. Uh, and, and of course, in the case of the Germans, it worked. In the case of some of the others, it didn't work so well because they had uh, um, a much more resistant kind of nationalist feeling, <laughs> saying healthier impulses than the Germans. So they they sort of resisted this. Uh, you couldn't do this with the Japanese, by the way. They tried; it didn't work. Uh, because, and I think in their case, because they had a much healthier self-image than the Germans did after the Nazi period. Um, but uh, uh, this was tried out on countries we defeated, uh, and then we brought it back to the United States. You know, as I always say, we reinfected ourselves with the bacteria we're using on other, <laughs> using on, on other people. Um, I don't, the, the, uh, the only serious reaction to, uh, to this in the United States is from the populist right. I don't see it. The conservative movement is useless. And in, in, you know, they just sort of slowly buy into the other side's positions on these social cultural issues. The populist right will resist. Um, and uh, as, as it grows, there will be a resistance. I, I, I also believe that if the United States takes a position against wokeism, which may eventually happen before wokeism destroys us, um, other countries will do the same because we are the hegemonic power. Yes. Um, my position is the same as Marx's position about the, communist, the socialist revolution. Marx believed that if Germany, France, or England, which were the, the leading bourgeois capitalist countries, were to become socialist, everybody else would. <laughs> and I believe that if the United States, you know, becomes a right-wing populist government and rejects wokeism, <clears throat> this will this will impact other Western countries as well. I think so too, but not in the sense of um, you know, winning electoral victories. I mean, I guess that's that's slowly kind of happened, but in right. the sense of a a cultural shift that mm -hmm. has the 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 heft of all the major institutions if if the new york times or whatever succeeds the new york times becomes right wing populist 
And yes, because the, the center of status is <laughs> is in the United States. It is hidden now. It's kind of hidden behind mm. this class war um, that is kind of an intra-white class war. That's what it seems to me. Uh, because no one really wants to believe that they're in the overweight Walmart hick class mm. that everyone hates. And they position themselves against, you know, there's even these these horrendous um, reality TV shows where, you know, people from the trailer park or so are just, the, mm-hmm. you know, the people wallow in, in, in their despair and, you know, how how stupid they are. And that, that's essentially kind of a little class tool for people to be able to say, oh, no, no, that's a completely different class to me. I'm I'm a normal person. But I also think, you know, the, the the growth of the populist right and the fact that people are a bit more immune to the messaging and framing of the left is because um, the, the water level of woke insanity and the effects that it's had on the population have reached a certain class of elite now, of elite white person who, you know, is, is feeling this in their business, you know, people people who maybe are, were in academia, were, were ousted for whatever wrong thing. So the the, the critical mass of people with, at least a little bit of status and a little mm. bit of potential to create mm. status through, you know, whatever cognitive output they have, um, it's reached them. And now I think this is a good, you know, inflection point where it's not just, you know, it's not just easy to dismiss, you know, the the people in the trailer park or whatever. It's if, you know, if you don't know, you don't, you don't care. But if it's your business, if you can't hire, if there's, there are 5 million regulations that impede your functioning, um, I think that's that's a, an important uh, point where you know it's going to gain much more steam, and hopefully, yes, we'll have our own New York Times in the next ten years, and and things will go yeah, from I, there. I, I would say you don't have to take over the New York Times; you can take over the Wall Street Journal. Uh, there are institutions on the right center that the populist right should be able to take over. Uh, at which point, I think the New York Times will count. I mean, if if there was a monolithic populist right pushback against the left. And if we controlled um, cha- television channels, national t- uh, television channels, so we had our own uh, newspapers, if we took over a lot, you would not need the New York Times. It would probably become irrelevant. So would the Washington Post. Um, there has to be obvious pushback, powerful pushback. Um, uh, one of the things that I've, I've been, I keep noticing and writing about on American greatness uh, our elections. Do, do you really think you can? I mean, my state now has a brain dead left far leftist, cultural leftist, John Fetterman as a senator. Gee, why did we get John Fetterman as a senator? Well, I'm sure there are a lot of unmarried women and uh, racial minorities who voted for him. Uh, but I think we should also look at the Philadelphia precincts, how they reported their votes. I mean, th- there is mass cheating going on with these. You know, mail-in ballots uh, in many states, um, you don't need very much to show, you know, to identify yourself when you go and vote. <laughs> um, um, the, 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 the more you move away from voting um, in your precinct on election day, identifying yourself there, the more likely it is the left wins. And Pennsylvania has become the perfect leftist state. And Josh Shapiro, our governor, was a major election fixer before he became governor. And it'd be very hard to change anything because he's now the governor of the state. <clears throat> but uh, something is going to have to be done uh, to return electoral laws to, uh, to what they were before. <clears throat> um, I'm sure there was massive, Arizona, Nevada, other places, I'm sure there was massive cheating. 
And there's no way you can take power away from the left unless you can take away some of their electoral, their electoral advantage. Yes. And the problem you have in the media now is that a lot of the discussions about this were, were censored. I mean, I've had uh, videos taken down and, and things like that where people mention right. this. I mean, right. I don't think this is going to be a problem, but uh, sometimes, yeah, this just, it just pings through and says, you know, electoral interference, whatever is, is interesting to them. It's just, it just disappears because, you know, you can't be questioning these, our, our sacred democracy. Uh, it's inevitable that it's right. Whatever result is is right. They they want it fair and square. Um, I also wanted to ask you. I mean, you've you've had a, a kind of a long com- conversation slash debate with with Mike Anton on on the subject of, of natural <laughs> rights, and um, mm-hmm. this is you know this is interesting. A little bit you know inside baseball, but it's um, it is it is interesting because I think it goes to the core of um, a lot of the discussions people have because. Uh, you know, the, the new right is essentially rediscovering a lot of things and all of these debates are, are resurging. And there's a big divide essentially between um, a more religious right, which is more inclined to something like uh, accepting natural rights or the divine right or things like that. Mm-hmm. And a more atheist, maybe pagan, maybe not necessarily <laughs> tied to uh, tied to uh, Christianity, um, who sees... Um, not necessarily rights, but maybe something closer to, to natural law or something kind of emergent from from nature itself. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I say I think Mike Canton's position is essentially that you either have natural right and that it is in the, at the at the mm-hmm. kind of a cornerstone of the founding, um, or beyond that there is kind of nihilism and you don't really have anywhere to 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 peg your your value system to and uh, and mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of different. So if you could kind of just shortly outline why why that's not uh, that's not the, the the best position well you know he, he said uh, uh, absent a uh, a national religion which everybody buys into what other basis do you want to um, establish American morality uh, public philosophy uh, other than natural than natural right my position is in the case of the United States it's um, uh, it's it's its original cultural moral orientation, which was Protestant. It's Protestant Christian country in its origin. I mean, you read these founding fathers; they're Presbyterians, Methodists, whatever. Uh, so that, that that is the answer. I mean, you have other groups that move here: Jews, Catholics, others. But you know, to some extent, they're going to have to conform to what I think starts out as a Protestant religious culture. Now, the reality is, of course, that is much weaker now, and it means something very different from what it meant in the late 18th century when these people were still believing Christians, as opposed to wokesters pretending to be Christians. Um, but I don't think natural right is the answer, and I make that and I make that very clear uh, in some of these debates. Although uh, uh, I notice Michael is much more uh, expansive in his prose than I am. <laughs> <laughs> you give me 900 words, I'll finish my argument in 900 words. Or as Michael goes on for six, 7,000 words, you know, in his responses, talks about Nietzsche. Much of it is interesting, by the way. It's just, it's just not a direct response. Um, but the uh, uh, I, somebody has to explain to me why I'm supposed to believe that individuals are born with individual rights that are sort of injected into them at birth or before birth. Um, and all of this is supposed to be derivative from John Locke. Well, uh, having read Locke, 
Um, I think it's very problematic whether we consider an abortion a violation of natural right, for instance. Um, there may be there may be a there's certainly a religious tradition to do this, and one say on the basis of modern science, one can do this. Um, but I'm not sure natural right arguments work very well there. Um, and I'm not, I also I'm not at all convinced that one can separate natural right from human rights and the human right industry. Okay. I mean, why am I supposed to stop the, the, counting my inborn rights with three? Why don't I have a, an inborn right to become a homosexual and have a homosexual marriage or to change my gender? As people, this is a human right or a natural right and so forth. So my, my own position uh, is that we all start with historical cultural traditions. And uh, there's nothing wrong with saying that there is a longstanding right uh, under English law, going back to the Middle Ages, for free men and free women to have guns to protect themselves. I'm all in favor of that. Why must I say I am born with an Im- I have an inborn right to carry a gun? It makes no sense to me at all. Um, I don't know. Do people in Africa? Do people who are not even aware of these rights? Do they have these rights? This was, you know, this is the question that David Hume asked uh, back in the 18th century. I think it's, you know, I mean, obviously. If you do not consider these to be your rights, they're not, they're not your rights. They're not part of your historical tradition. I'm also not again saying that you know there, there are moral absolutes by which we should live. Um, one of them is not to sexualize young children and change their sex and so forth, which to me is an absolute obscenity. Um, and I'm quite willing to say we agree on moral absolutes, biblical ethics, whatever we want to call them. Uh, this this is the the uh, the minimal substrate, a moral substrate for our society. I have no problem with that. <laughs> Once you go along this road to natural rights, it sort of like opens the door to all kinds of other things. I also find this a very um, unconvincing view of where our rights come from. I'm, I'm not at all convinced by this. Uh, and as I concede to Michael Anton, I know that some of the founding fathers invoke natural rights. And you see this in state constitutions during and after the American Revolution. Um, this is fine. They also believed in all kinds of other things, like biblical morality, um, uh, the examples of you know, classical literature and so forth. This is one of the things that they, that they believed in. Um, I don't think we have to be um, restricted to that belief or see that this, this, is, you know, this is the basis and justification for America's existence as a political society. Um, I, I also, I all, it also has a universal quality that I don't like. That you know, be, because <clears throat> we have this right, we must give this right to other people because it's universal and God gave it to everybody. Um, maybe their cultures are quite different. You know, maybe they want to live differently. Uh, and then, of course, you get into neoconservatism. The neoconservatives love Jaffa's stuff, uh, although they were much more radical than Jaffa or the, or the Claremont Institute. Because then they could use this to carry on wars for democracy. Because you know, every everybody has an inborn right to democracy. Why is that not a natural right? <laughs> you know, so um, I just don't want to open that can of worms. Um, I, I find that on just about every practical question, there is no difference between Michael Anton and myself. I probably agree with him on politics more than anyone else, <laughs> and he would say the same thing about me. It's just the philosophical basis uh, that I think has created this disagreement. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a core it's a core question. I think you know mm-hmm. one one thing that people on on the side have realized is that um, 
you know, the, the, the composition, the, the value system of a state needs to be, pe- be pegged to something that right. we can all agree on. Uh, and that is tied to some, you know, something that's less, you know, variable than, you know, a vote mm-hmm. or, or something like that, because, you know, that throws you straight in, back into liberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see why, um, you know, people cling to, to religion. I can also see why, why you're not necessarily convinced by, by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, I'm not at all hostile. So, I mean, you know, I, uh, uh, and I think most of these neo-pagans are ridiculous. I mean, how are you going to become a pagan? This is like 2000 years ago. <laughs> you know? And this is, again, my historicism speaking, that the Western world has been Christian for several thousand years. <laughs> and you say you're going to return to something, I don't know, to ancient Indo-European religion or Celtic religion. Uh, this to me is just a fantasy. Yeah, it's I, I just as someone who's kind of been watching the the neo pagan space, I think it's more something tied to aesthetics, something tied mm-hmm. to a vision of kind of Nietzschean vitalism, of kind of transcending right. the bounds of, of of society of acceptable morality, and obviously right. Christianity is something that one needs to transcend mm-hmm. to become that type of person and grab life by the horns and be whatever a pirate or the type of <laughs> archetype you want to embody. Um, so I think that's, it's more of um, an idealized vision. I don't necessarily think people it are that. It's, it's very idealized. And uh, there's also, I think, a failure to recognize that Christianity incorporates, it integrates some of these things. That's why you're aware of it, because the Christians just pick up all the stuff. It's very syncretistic. Um, and you simply want a different syncretism, right? One that incorporates paganism or reemphasizes the pagan uh, element in the West. I think there's also a disappointment with how badly Christianity has handled slave morality. Yes. And I think that's absolutely correct. I, I think the Christian response to the left has been disgraceful, you know, nothing short of that. You know, but but I, I don't think it's so much theology um, as guilty conscience and buying into leftist values. Right. I mean, they accept the values and they also want to be liked by the left. Like if you're a minister somewhere, you don't want your parishioners to leave because you're a sexist. I mean, the Bible is clearly sexist and you can't escape from that. (laughs) That's part of the package. And and all of the kind of the morality tales of the the 20th century are Mm -hmm. have that flavor to them. It's about the Mm -hmm. underdogs. You know, there's from from the Holocaust to Martin Luther King to all of this. You know, right. there's there's not really any modern saints or any sort of story that people can cling to that's actually mm-hmm. uh, refers to to biblical values. It's more about um, not being racist and you know uh, allowing <laughs> the women to become computer programmers or whatever is very important. Yeah. So, um, but it, there's there's also I think a a big problem for the so-called pagan right with uh, with universalism, which is another thing that you refer to, and uh, you know religion does very well. It's the idea that you know once you you just apply enough Christianity. I mean, um, if you look at South America, you can see you can apply Christianity quite liberally, and things can still go wrong in a dramatic fashion. Um, that, um, you know, it's the, the idea that, you know, people just need to become more Christian and then, um, you know, the, the, the problems of, of, of social life and of the of state and, mm-hmm. and governance will sort, sort themselves out. Yeah. The, the, the so-called pagans, vitalists do not buy this. And I also understand why they don't, because it doesn't seem to pan out like that in, in reality. But you notice the neo-pagans become universalists too. And we have a fellow writing for us. He's an Iranian Muslim who's a Nietzschean vitalist. Now, he, 
he thinks that we all belong to the same community of values and ideas, right? <laughs> this is taken over from Christianity or Islam. It's a, it's a universal religion of neo-paganism that he wants. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think this stuff becomes universalized in the end. <laughs> and then, of course, you have neo-pagans who, uh, like Alain de Benoit in France, who blames, you know, sexism or something on Christianity. <laughs> in other words, pagans were nicer, you know, <laughs> and how they treated women. So, uh, you know, very often you get neo-pagans taking over woke values. Uh, um, if you read, if you read some of the uh, the new atheists like Dawkins and Harris and others, they have nice things to say about pagans. You know that uh, they obviously were tolerant of gays and so forth. I don't know how true that is. Uh, so uh, their, their neo paganism is sort of mixed with wokeism in some cases. I think the, um, I don't know if you've read the, the the work of John Gray. I think he describes the the new atheists the best. They're essentially just anti anti Christian, um, mm-hmm. yeah. It's like just just um, kind of a millenarian secularist right. cult that is anti Christian. That's kind of their their direction. It's not necessarily atheist. You know, they they mm-hmm. like all sorts of minor theisms, especially wokeism. This is quite well integrated <laughs> there. But yeah, just the, the the big one that is easy to fight because you know we all know the fairy tales and they're easy to debunk. Um, um, I also wanted to ask you about equality. I think I, I found, actually, I found this quote from you uh, in one of the Mike Anton essays, the long Mike mm-hmm. Anton essays, but I think it's a, it's a very, mm-hmm. very interesting quote. I'm just going to read this and then I'll, I'll let you, you comment on this. Mm-hmm. Um, the pursuit of equality is always an unfinished product, a project. Even Lincoln, through most of his life, would not have pushed his ideal as far as he did, as did later egalitarians. Promoting equality with or without what are taken to be universal rights, it's like plant, is like planting kudzu. The plant just keeps spreading until it devours entire gardens. This is as well a <laughs> uh, core insight of the of the so-called new right. At least you know this is something that people people have realized. Um, I mean, do you do you still stand by this this statement? Well, I I, I stand by it in, in the sense that I think it's historically true. And I think that equality is different from other values in the sense that it demands a total commitment and pushing the ideal further and further in the direction of a totalitarian society. Now, this does not happen with freedom. This does not happen with judge. It doesn't happen with other values. I think equality is an inherently dangerous value. Um, and uh, there, there's, an, there's another statement I've made for which I think. Um, Jacob Siegel and Tablet went after me that the right is opposed to equality and defends particularity. Now, when I said that, I was simply describing what I think is the right. Uh, Leo Strauss made a similar statement once about the right. Um, I'm not saying that the right is always good, you know, and the left is always bad. I'm saying that this is what defines the right, you know, that the right will challenge the idea of equality and challenge universalism. They are the critics of it. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, I mean, that, that, that is the argument that, that I'm making. But then I also think equality is an inherently dangerous ideal. Um, it has led to the worst excesses in human history. People will always bring up the Nazi crimes, which were done in the name of inequality of some kind. <laughs> um, but just about every other mass ma- massacre that you know that uh, they, the communists killed almost 100 million people in the name of equality, 
and the destruction of uh, uh, of constitutional liberties in Western countries has been done entirely in the name of equality. It's going on right now. Um, and uh, therefore, I find people who worship at the altar of equality extremely dangerous, and I find their ideal dangerous. Um, now, on the other hand, you know, total inequality uh, may lead to injustice. I'm not, I've never, I've never denied that. But that is not the problem that we're facing right now. It is, it is the excess of equality and the inability to rein in what I think is almost a cancerous ideal. Yes, I think um, that an, an issue that um, that we see with kind of the the, the conservative conservatism Inc. and the um, is this distinction between um, equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. You know, mm-hmm. we're not for equality of outcome; we're for equality of opportunity. Um, the problem is that. In reality, equality of outcome after X amount of iterations is the expected result to prove that you have right. provided equality of opportunity. And we are at that point. And it's been, let's say, you know, you liberalize this X, X or Y. Maybe, maybe the left gives you a decade or two to, to catch up. But when you don't catch up and you never will catch up because, you know, when we on the right believe certain things about, you know, just normal inequality. Yeah, I, I- but, but I, I think the, the concept of equality of opportunity meant something very different in the past. Like when Napoleon spoke about carrières ouvertes au talent, that careers would be open to talent. He was not saying he's going to drag up people from this and make sure they get jobs. He was saying, you know, if your grandmother was a Sephardic Jew, we'll let you serve in the military or something, or you can become a commander, you know, you work hard enough. Um, I think what has become tied up to equality of opportunity is the notion that the government is going to create a situation in which people can be more equal in how they compete. And this, I think, has has been the the case for at least the last hundred years, you know, sort of going back to the creation of the American welfare state. um, So that there really is not much difference between equality of opportunity and equality of, of outcome. And you're correct. That we assume that at a certain point, you know, everything will level out because everybody will be equal because all human beings are equal. Of course, they're not. I mean, they're not equal in intelligence, they're not equal in aptitude, nor are they equal in the social positions from which they start, which is, which is true. So what do we do? In order to have the true equality of opportunity, we must level down society and everybody in the same social position because uh, otherwise we don't have equality of opportunity. So I, I think the, the less the government speaks about equality and the more about, you know, the strict constitutionalism, constitutional, things like that, um, the less dangerous, you know, the state is. Once you talk about equality, uh, you're already on the road to what we now have. Exactly. Do you feel that there is um, a way to dial this back to to move to a, a smaller state, I know it's been tried, and you know, is there a way to uh, to to teach the state not to be as involved as it is and everything? No. Yes, no, I, I, <laughs> that's I, I, the answer I expected. You see, the state is inherent in, in in the modern administrative state, and it's why it is set up, right, to level uh, inequality, to social resocialize people. Right to take over their families, to colonize them. They're doing all the things for which they were set up. You know, they're doing it very well, very effective. They're doing it relentlessly, um, and there is not a groundswell of opposition to this, as far as I can see here or in any other Western liberal democracy. In quotations, 
since liberal democracies are neither liberal nor de- or democratic <laughs> anymore, <laughs> they're totalitarian, woke totalitarian regimes. But but well, I, I'm I'm not I'm not seeing this you know at all. Um, uh, and uh, unless there is some mass some mass pushback, this is not going to happen. I noticed that in Western countries that imposed ridiculous lockdowns and forced you to take it. The governments which did that were popular. They won re-election, right? Yes. And in Germany, uh, people were screaming, Merkel is making us do this or something. Well, you take a look who won the last election. The crazy woke left won the election. People like this because they're habituated to taking orders from the government. And they're habituated to believing what the media and the educators tell them. So, um, you know, unless we can gain control over these institutions, or just smash them, uh, it's going to be very hard to change society. Immigration also is bad because the people who come in, typically from the third world, but even ones who come in from from Western countries, um, are uh, uh, grateful to the leftist government that let them in. (laughs) And they also feel as if they're outsiders. You know, they they feel sort of alienated from the white Christian majority culture, which they see in the United States, though it hardly exists anymore. and they're they're going to support the left. So, um, you know, I think, we, it, uh, and the, the Democrats are smart having these open borders and letting people overrun the country because they're going to vote for the Democratic Party. Uh, they're right. <laughs> you know? They're right in what they're doing. I mean, they're ruthless, disgusting people, but they're right in what they, 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 uh, they pursue their own interests very, very effectively. I, I had a piece in American Greatness today responding to Victor Davis Hanson uh, who spoke about the mad Democrats who are going to suffer nemesis as in a Greek tragedy. I said, these people are not mad. They're brilliant in what they're doing. You know, they're not like Oedipus. <laughs> they're more like Hitler, you know, taking power. They know exactly what they're doing. And this is the scary thing. You know, yeah. they're getting away with it. Yeah. And they're, you know, they they don't mind... Um kind of bending the truth. I mean, you, you could see this, you know, a, yes. a lot of, there's a lot of people who believe obviously in the leftist project, but there's also um, a kind of chips fall, let, let the chips fall where they may type uh, attitude towards, uh, towards politics, because they, they also believe that the opposition is the devil. So they've really mm-hmm. kind of worked themselves into a lather. And then, you know, the, uh, you know, what you were speaking about before with, the kind of the, the the city voting machine and uh, um, this is all absolutely understandable if you mm-hmm. think that you know you the, the antichrist is your is your opponent would surprise me if they didn't do that so um, yeah I mean it's it's a it's a strange place to be in and I think you're right in the sense that uh, all incentives and and you know we're we're a bit on rails with this mm-hmm. with this type of thing in, in terms of what people believe and kind of what the, the main values are. There's a, there's a sizable opposition, but it is nowhere near the mainstream. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, it's just starting to, to roll down the hill. So we'll see, we'll see what history brings um, b- before I let you go, because we're coming up on time here. Uh, I want to ask you the, the last question. Everyone gets this question and it is a question <laughs> about um, a recommendation that you have um, for our listeners. Um, a subversive thinker and in the spirit of the show, who um, is maybe underrated, you know, it could be any sort of thinker, writer, a poet, a painter, whatever you, whatever you prefer. Well, you know, I, I wish that there, there's probably a, 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 something approaching an infinitude 
influence me in different languages. And, uh, the question is, you know, whom have I been reading lately? Right? Yes, pretty much. <laughs> that is the question. And, you, you know, there, there are certain thinkers I'm always coming back to. One of them is Aristotle, because I taught him in Greek. And I, his politics and his Nicomachean ethics have influenced me profoundly. Um, another one is Carl Schmitt, on whom I wrote a book, who's not a very nice person, but he's brilliant. And he is one of the most elegant writers in the German language. And I've, I've been reading both of them. Uh, so, uh, you know, those, those, are, those are people I've been reading lately. And as you can see, I do have a predilection for political theory. Yes, that's no problem. People will enjoy that on the show. Uh, I, 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 I also uh, share uh, Pedro Gonzalez's uh, fascination with James Burnham. Yeah, very. Well, I, I think remains a very relevant author. Absolutely relevant, and I, I know I've just I read today in preparing for this um, an article you wrote about uh, Condylus, uh, Panayotis mm -hmm. Condylus. He is another figure that's now kind of slowly being absorbed to write. It is a bit hard because. Essentially, people are now doing the work of translating a lot of his work because it's only available in German. Have you um, ever read him? I've read parts of um, in German recently because my German is a little bit rusty because I studied in German mm -hmm. when I was in, in college. But um, it's uh, it is quite verbose and a little bit recondite. But he was a friend of he was a friend of mine. Oh, really? We have a German correspondence. Yeah, we have influenced each other. Um, he is one of my favorite political, you know, modern political theorists. I agree, he is profound, and uh, it's sort of a, you get sort of a grab bag of ideas. He's heavily influenced by Marxism. It's Marx and Carl Schmitt. Yeah, he seems to me Huge. like a, a kind of a, a right wing, or maybe even extreme right in some ways. Though he is, I think, a Marxist mm -hmm. or uh, of kind of a Slavoj Žižek for the uh, for the the dissident for the right. right. <laughs> yeah, just a kind of a. <laughs> Very, uh, yeah, it goes in all sorts of directions. Very, very interesting. So, yeah, I'm, I can't wait for all of his works to be translated, which I think they're slowly yeah, on. Yeah, I, I sort of run out of patience after reading, like, the book uh, De Conservatismus and uh, what is the other one? Die Bürgerliche Denkfeld. Yeah, yeah. That's, which, that's which is Which makes, I think, very valid points. It just goes on and on, though. You know, I, it, it's sort of like talk, like, you know, exchanging... Uh, information with with Michael Anton. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I write concisely. You get back, you know, two volumes uh, as as an answer. Um, but I, I'm surprised that anybody in, else in this country reads Condylus. Um, yeah, he, he, yeah. Also, he also wrote in Greek. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was from Athens, and he came from a wealthy Greek family. And his early writings are in Greek. Then he went and lived in Heidelberg, and his later writings are mostly in German. Yes, I think mostly his German writings. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there are, there are quite a lot of German speakers um, mm -hmm. on the right. I mean, people translating some more um, uh, unknown essays of Carl Schmidt as well, and Ernst Jünger, and you know, just yeah, there's definitely a lot of interest and in, in more uh, exotic uh, pieces of, of right wing uh, esoterica. So, right. uh, um, well, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Godfrey. This was this was a pleasure speaking to you. Um, I mean, I hope we can do this again. I know you're a fountain of, of wisdom and, uh, you know, foresight and hindsight for, for our, everyone. <laughs> a lot of hindsight. <laughs> a lot of hindsight, yes. Um, but yeah, this is, this is very important. And um, yes, I, I thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. 
If you'd like to support my work and access more content, please consider subscribing through Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. See you next week.